I won't give you too much of an introduction, but yeah, my name is Justin. I did plant Sacred City Church Davenport. Um, Today, we're going to spend the good portion of the day thinking and talking about the concept of worldview and how the Christian worldview is the only hope for our world. Now, I want to give you a disclaimer right up front. I am a blue-collar pastor, philosopher, and theologian. What I mean by that is though I have a master's degree in theology, which doesn't really mean much, I am mostly self-taught. I read a lot, uh, usually between 50 and 75 books a year, most of which are works of philosophy, worldview, theology. For the talk today, I didn't realize it, but we, I had a stack of books, and I was, I, they asked me how many books I read, and I said, well, for this three, these three talks I'm giving today, I, I read eight books. Just because I like, to ha- I like to know the big picture, I like to get a lot of different perspectives, and then God has given me a gift that I can somehow whittle that down to some, some main thoughts and, main, and some main ideas. And so that's what I want to do for us today. But I, I, I say I'm a blue-collar guy because I never enjoyed a classroom. I did not take the traditional academic route to becoming a pastor, theologian. Um, give me a book and let me read it, and then we can talk about it. I didn't want to sit in class and just, you know, talk that way. Um, I wanted to read, and then reading for me is a ve- very dangerous uh, endeavor because I don't enjoy reading just for the sake of reading and gaining knowledge. I like to learn and then get to work. I'm not much of a theoretical thinker. Um, in my mind, all ideas have consequences. So I like to read and apply it to the real stuff of life right away. I like to learn and then to go out and build something. I framed my first house at the age of 19. I like to think and learn and gain some new skills and then go out there and put it into action as quickly as possible. Now, at the bare minimum, I study and then I preach. That's, that's what I like to do. I study, I learn, and then I preach. I get it out of my head and I want to get it out into the real world because I don't appreciate theological eggheads that have all the information up here, but they don't know how to get out there and do something in the real world. They don't know how to make it make sense or make it have, put, a, put flesh on it and then get out there in the real world. So all of this talk today about worldview is only, I, I'm not going to try to impress you with my knowledge. I don't want you to go, oh, that was so deep. That was, wow, what... I want you to learn something new about God and about the Bible and about the Christian worldview, and then I want you to leave here today more equipped to do something real in the real world, to parent your child more closely aligned with the Word of God, right? To build a school, to build a business, to lead a church, to lead a missional community, to make disciples and to renew your city. My goal today is for you guys to take something from this and to go out and make something happen in the real world. Hopefully, you'll be more confident to share your faith, more motivated to bring the gospel to bear on all of life and make an impact in your city. So you are hopefully going to learn a lot, but the purpose is that so you will be better equipped to live a distinctly Christian life out there in the real world, okay? So that's my goal. Um, my goal is to not just give you theories, but to help you make sense of life so you can go out there and live a distinctly Christian life in a crazy world, okay? So let's just get started this morning. Um, we're going to be talking about worldview and Christian worldview. I want you guys to be engaged. Um, and, and all throughout this day, okay, I don't, I love when people raise their hand, all right? Because I will say things that I assume you that we're, I'm communicating clearly, and you're like, what the heck does that mean? I, so that's on me, right? So I want you to raise your hand and say, I don't know what that means, or what do you mean by that, or what does that look like in the real life, or how does that affect me, a stay-at-home mom, or how does it affect me in my career? Ask questions, all right? I want this to be beneficial for you today. That's my goal, okay? So first question for everyone out there, what is a worldview? What is a worldview? Come on. 
the lens that we see life through. Okay, what else? Oh, I love that word. Yes, it's our presuppositions about life. Okay, I like it. What else? Anything else? What's our worldview? What is a worldview? Anything else? All right, do we have a, I think my assistant printed out notes for everybody or kind of like notes, right? Do you have something like that? Because I'm going to go to a very technical definition here and then we're going to break it down. James Sire kind of brings together a lot of different teaching on worldview. And he uses this, should be on the first page of your notes this morning. A worldview, nope, yep. You don't have that? Uh-oh. You got it? All right. Should be a packet, some kind of packet. Yeah, right there. I see a lot of people have it. If you don't have it, we'll have to run out. We'll, we'll, uh, ben will get, get you one. James Sire says this. Should be on the first page of that packet. A worldview is a commitment, a fundamental orientation of the heart that can be expressed as a story or in a set of presuppositions Assumptions which may be true, partially true, or entirely false, which we hold consciously or subconsciously, consistently or inconsistently about the basic constitution of reality, and that provides the foundation on which we live, move, and have our being. Thank you for that succinct definition that we all completely understand, and it makes sense of our life. Philosopher James Sire, right? This is why, see, the Lord... Whatever gifts the Lord has given me, it is a gift to completely understand that definition and then say it clearly. And that's my goal today, to make it make sense for everybody that doesn't have a PhD, okay? So that's my goal today. I want to break down that definition really quick. A world first, a worldview is a commitment. Now, this is important. It is a faith commitment about ultimate reality. Every, this is gonna help you guys as you go out and live and try to be missionaries to the, this culture. This culture is lying about everything, all right? And here is one thing that you need to know so you can see through those lies. Everyone's worldview begins with a faith commitment. Everyone's worldview is first and foremost religious, they're believing something that they can't prove at the core of their worldview. Everything, so worldview begins in a commitment. It's a faith commitment about reality. Secondly, it involves the heart and not just the head. Now this, we're, again, today, we're not here just to get information into our head. Education itself is about shaping the heart. It's about what we love. Sometimes we know, right? Like we know something in our head and yet we do something completely opposite. Why? Because we love something, something in our core, something in our affections, something in our desires is going in a different direction than what, it, what our head is saying to do, right? So a worldview isn't just what we think. Many people think they have a Christian worldview, but they don't. Your worldview is always displayed by how you live your life, right? Because it's a matter of the heart, not just the head. Much of what directs our life is actually what's going on in our heart, not what we're cognitively thinking about. All right, number three, a worldview is also a story, it's a comprehensive story that makes sense of our world and life. When the, the theologians and philosophers invented this word called worldview, it was meant to display a view about life and our world, world and life. So listen, it's about what you think about the external world and what you think about the internal world, your life. It's a comprehensive view. What makes me, me? What makes the world, the world? 
the outer world around us and our inner world of personhood, meaning, values, etc. But I want you to see this. The key is it's a comprehensive story. A worldview needs to make sense of everything. Fourth, this definition shows us that it can be consciously held or subconscious. So you don't have to be aware of it. Indeed, as you learn and study worldviews, there'll be people you come in contact with that you'll be able to say, oh, here's a big word, they have a nihilistic worldview. They have a naturalistic worldview. They have a secular humanist worldview. They might not know that. That's just what they're holding unconsciously or subconsciously. We can all live our lives and actually not understand or be aware of our worldview because sometimes it is caught more than it's taught. It can be intuitive, subconscious, and found in our presuppositions about life. Sometimes our worldview is driven by our gut, just our instincts, what we feel is right. Five, our worldview can be consistent or inconsistent. That we are inconsistent people, so we might say we hold a certain worldview, but our actions reveal something totally different. Now, this is interesting because, you know, we just had this G3 summit, right? This G3 summit where the world leaders gathered together, and it's kind of this worldview of, you could say, uh, radical environmentalism, and they're holding that, the earth, I mean, literally, they're, they're preaching sermons, the world is going to end in three years if we don't do something. And how did they all get to the summit? Private jets. If you don't see the inconsistency in that, then you don't understand the radical environmentalist worldview, right? So we can say we're all about one thing. We can say this is our worldview, but our actions reveal our, our real view about life and the world. Sixth, a worldview provides the foundation on which we live and move and have our being. Now, this is a big claim. Our worldview directs our life. Our worldview directs our life. So the world, our worldview is one of the most important things about us. And as Christians, we want our worldview to be directed by what? Huh? The Bible, Scripture, right? We don't want our worldview to be directed by our political persuasion, our educational experience, whatever, our culture that we grew up in. We want our worldview to be directed by the Bible. That's our goal. So here's three metaphors for a worldview this morning. One was already given. Our worldview acts as a lens through which we view everything. You put pink sunglasses on, guess what? Everything looks pinkish, right? Think of your worldview. So your worldview, you put this lens on or you have this lens and it's going to affect the way you view everything. It's going to, weigh the, it's going to affect the way you view the government. It's going to affect the way you view politics. It's going to affect the way you view personhood and gender. It's going to affect the way you view family and marriage and relationships. It's going to affect the way you view the church. It's going to affect the way you view Literally everything. First metaphor, worldview is a lens through which we view everything. Second metaphor, a worldview is also a compass that points our heart in a certain direction, listen, and tells us what is the good life, what is truth, what is beautiful, what is worth pursuing in life. So a worldview is also a compass. It's not just a lens. It's also a compass that points our heart in a certain direction that says, this is the good life. This is the direction you should go. Now, you should know if you grow up in China or if you grow up in Japan or if you grow up in the Middle East or if you grow up in America, you have been given a certain compass. And that compass is not necessarily biblical. Right? Japanese culture values honor. Right? We don't really value honor here in our American culture, right? We don't really care. I mean, so I had some, some folks in our church 
um, that were from the east, and every year at Christmas, they had to make a sacrificial gift to her father's, to her father, financial gift in the thousands of dollars. And I was like, tell what? You do what? He was, you know, he was American. He's like, yeah, man, I know. This, this was a hard thing to swallow. But the, her, the worldview that she grew up in, parents take care of their children, 18, 20 years, pay for their college, send them off, and then it is, it is expected for the child to reciprocate some of that and show honor to their parents for the rest of their life by giving them kind of a financial sum at the, at the end of the year, every year, just to say thank you, right? You know, I, I'm kind of feeling Japanese. You know, I'm, I, I'm kind of feeling, kind of feeling, I'm leaning in that direction, you know what I mean? I think I can find that, no, right? Yeah, I got five kids. This could work out well for me. So, right. All right, now lastly, a worldview. It's not only a lens. It's not only a compass. It's also a map that guides us as we live our lives in the world. And this is an important, it's a map that guides us. And this is what we need to think of. Because the Christian life, when you become a Christian, you do not get downloaded a Christian worldview. It would be nice if it was the matrix and it worked like that, but it doesn't. And that means this, these, the scriptures, Old and New Testament, are a map for us that are meant to shape our worldview, that we have to go back every single day. We should be going back to this and, and getting directions about life. Oh, you know what? I used to hold to this. I, I realized through scripture, a lot of study of scripture, I'm actually off on that. I need to reorient my life. I need to change my, some values I have. I need to change some direction that I've been leave, living in or leading in, right? So it's also a map. Now, okay, Ben, I, I'm sorry, I didn't look at my watch when I got up here and started. So wh- what time do I need to be done? Uh, right, before 10. right before 10. Okay. All right. Here is um, a... Diagram, can I pull this over? Okay, here's a diagram. I want to show us here. This is your worldview, okay? I'm just going to put worldview. This is your worldview. You've got, in the world, you've got legal institutions, you've got, I'm just going to abbreviate here, healthcare. You've got education. You've got politics. You've got religious institutions. You've got your family. You've got arts, so you've got your stories, media, music, all of that. You've got environmental concerns. Okay? Now, this, I could go on and on here, right? This is by, uh, from a book called, um, by Middleton and Walsh, Walsh called The Transforming Vision. Your worldview is going to be affected and influenced by all of these things. Now, listen. Your education is going to affect your worldview, and then your worldview is also going to affect education, right? This is one of the reasons why our modern educational system is where it is, because 99% of educators in fields like, um, fields like health, health and healthcare and um, uh, 93% of math and uh, just, I just read this, so that's why I'm pulling these numbers off the top of my head, um, are, come from more of a secular, humanistic worldview, okay? So they were educated in a certain way, and that develops their worldview, and then out of their worldview, now they're going to educate in a certain way. Politics, religion, your religion, what kind of church you grow up in is going to affect that, your family, your arts, all of this. So this is what I want to see. Your worldview is affected by all of these things and it affects the way you see and interpret reality, okay? And this is why we as Christians need to make sure that our worldview is first and foremost influenced and affected and and based upon the unchanging 
Word of God. All right? And so that means we need to constantly be challenging our presuppositions, challenging our assumptions about life, and going back to the Bible to check it there. So let me, just for a little experiment here. When you look at the state of our world at present, are you encouraged or discouraged? Are things going well or not so much? Not, I heard not so much. Not so much. Anybody else? A little discouraged? A little discouraged? Raise your hand if you're discouraged. Raise your hand if you're encouraged. Both? All right, I like that. I like that. It says something about your worldview. <clears throat> right? So, oh, well, there's, I, can, I can see some good things. I can see some bad things. Right? Okay, now listen. But I think for the most part, we're discouraged. For the most part, we're discouraged, right? Things are not going too well. Now, I think that might have something to do with your worldview. That might have something to do with the way you view the story, where things are headed, what's about to happen. How do you reconcile the fact that we believe right here things are going poorly with the global revival going on in China, Latin America, and Africa? I mean, let's just do this. Let's go back 2,021 years ago. How many Christians were on the planet? Twelve, maybe. Twelve-ish, right? Depends on, we, you know, a couple years overlap in there, right? After Jesus, could have been 80, could have been 300, could have been 1,000, right? Depends on where we land specifically. Okay, how many Christians are on the planet right now. As of yesterday, 2.54 billion with a B. See? So, in one sense, things are better, right? A whole lot more Christians on this planet. But in another sense, specifically when we were looking in our cultural moment in America, things seem dark. Now listen, your worldview determines how you view our cultural moment. If you believe that the Bible tells us that things are going to get worse and worse and worse, and then when things are so bad, Jesus has to finally get off his throne. He's like the dad who's watching TV, and he's not going to get up for the screaming kids until something hits the wall or somebody starts crying. Like Jesus is on it. He's just waiting for things to get so out of hand. He's like, nope, not bad enough yet. I'm still up here right? He's going to, or he's going to zap us off to heaven. Things are going to get so bad, he's just going to be like, zap us off to heaven and let this earth completely go to hell. See, that worldview has consequences. It can affect, it will affect how you live your day-to-day life. Just think of it. All right, kids, here's what's about to happen. Things are getting really, really, really bad, and then Jesus is going to take all the good people off the planet, and then it's going to get even worse, Oh, okay, so what should I do with my life? Well, go out and have a good life. But it's getting worse and worse and worse and worse. Why should I plant a church? Why should I build a school? Why should I build a business? Why should I raise a family? Right? Are we just, what are we to do? Are we just to sit on our hands and sing the hallelujah chorus as things get darker and darker and darker? Because, you know, as they've been saying, since I was, said forever, but... For a long time, Jesus is coming back soon. So that negative view of the future actually discourages us from building anything today that's going to push back the darkness. Now contrast that with, big word here, so eschatology, how things end, studying things at the end. Contrast that with a more positive eschatology, a more missional understanding of ourselves. It's like this. If you're born a dragon slayer, you don't complain that there's a lot of dragons outside your door. You're actually, yes, I have something to do today, right? I have something to kill. This is good. If you're a ghostbuster, you don't complain that there's a lot of ghosts. If you run out of ghosts, 
You lose your career, right? You lose your way of paying the bills. You lose your gifts. Think of it like that. Maybe God has called us and equipped us to bring light into the darkness right where we live in the here and now. And maybe things are going to get better as we continue to preach the gospel and build gospel-centered institutions before Jesus comes back. I said secular humanism is a lie. Our culture is telling us if you want to be on the right side of history, then you need to accept the secular humanist you know, or the left version of human identity and sexuality and gender and all these things. The global revival says the exact opposite. These global Christians are conservative in their beliefs about sexuality and identity. Our culture is going down, but globally the kingdom of God is still expanding. That should encourage us. I think if we view things in a more positive way, hopeful light that I do think the Bible teaches us to do, maybe we could expect God to use us to start a new revival, to start a new reformation that brings renewal and restoration to our cities, our country, and our world. But that was just one little piece of how our worldview can drastically affect the way we see what we're experiencing in our life and then how we live in our day-to-day life. If I think this is all going to hell in a handbasket, I'm just going to hunker down and read my Bible and pray and wait for Jesus. But if I believe that there is a possibility that God has called us to push back darkness and build something here and, to, here and today, and that God is expanding the kingdom of God through our work, I'm going to be more encouraged to get up and go plant a seed. Right? They say the best time to plant a tree was when? 10 years ago, second best time is when? Right now, right? But if we're all sitting here thinking, well, it's all, there's no use to plan anything, and which is what the church has been doing for the past 50 years. We're, we're, we're not planting, I mean, all, most of you here are part of church plants, but by and large, most churches are not planting churches. Most denominations are not growing. You don't see a lot of new Christian institutions being built. We're deconstructing everything. Deconstruction is easy. Constructing things is difficult. I told this story with my, my, our church a couple weeks ago. I, did, I, I, I had a construction company for a long time, and, and I did a, a project a couple years ago. It was my last kind of project. And I uh, took my son with me. It was during the summer, and we had a full kitchen remodel, removing all the cabinets, opening up walls, doing this whole deal, th- big deal. And uh, you know, first day, you guys have all watched the show. First day is what? Demo day. And guess what? I get, I, my 12-year-old son, I took him to the hardware store, got him the belt, got him all the tools, gave him the hammer, and I said, son, deconstruct. And he's like, anything? Anything that direction, yes, you can take. And just, wow. He said, and guess what? Deconstruction is easy, right? You just smash and rip and tear down. But the second phase, construction, requires a craftsman. He watched and was my gopher after that moment, right? Our culture right now knows how to see through everything, how to deconstruct everything, how to pull down and point at everything that's wrong. There's an injustice here and there's injustice there. And they don't know how to build anything because they don't have a hopeful worldview. If it's all going to burn up, like the environmentalists tell us, what's the point? If, it's, if we're slowly going to drift away from the sun and it's all going to freeze, like Elon Musk tells us, right? Our only hope is Mars or transhumanism. What is the point of raising a family? What is the point of building an institution? It's a meaningless worldview, even though it's subconscious for most people. It's a meaningless worldview and it's creating chaos in the lives of people Depression's higher than it's ever been. Suicide is higher than it's ever been. And it's a consequence. Ideas have consequences. Worldview has consequences. We have the answer. We have to be bold enough to say so. And we have to have it ourselves. We have to possess it ourselves. Now, um, I want you to think through the Bible with me right now. There are, there are, we see this cycle 
in the Bible where cultures get dark, cultures get desperate, things go poorly, things go bad, people push away from the living God, and then it spirals into idolatry and it spirals into all kind of bad things, right? You have this over and over and over again. If you check this pattern, uh, the, the Latin phrase is post tenebrae lux, after darkness, light. And you see this in Genesis 1, there's, there's darkness, there's nothing on the face of the deep, and God does what? Speaks into creation, and light appears. Then you see this in Adam and Eve. Things are going good, then what happens? They sin, darkness covers. Then what happens? God gives the spark of redemption. Then you see it with uh, um, Cain and Abel, right? You see this darkness, and then out of that darkness, there's this hope of redemption. Then you see this with Noah. Things get really, really, really bad with Noah, and then God gives this spark of light, this hope of redemption. You see this over and over and over. You get to um, where it's like society-wide. You get to Daniel chapters 1 and 3, when God's people have turned away from God, and God uses a godless nation, Babylon, to come in and take his people. And, and what he does, Nebuchadnezzar comes in, he takes the best and the brightest from Israel. Takes all of their chiefs, all of the, the best educated, the best looking. He takes, it says all this in Daniel chapter one and three. And he wants to change the culture. He wants to enculturate them. He pulls them out. And this is a, in, one of the darkest moments in the Old Testament, right? Where God's, the, the temple is the, 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 the Jerusalem is destroyed, the temple is destroyed, God's people get carried off into Babylon, and then what happens right after that? Well, you have Ezra, about 80 years later, you have Ezra and Nehemiah who are called by God to be rebuilders. Ezra to rebuild the temple, so he's restoring the worship of God's people, that's step one, because all worldview is formed out of a religious commitment, so the church has got to be reformed first. And then what does Nehemiah do? Nehemiah is rebuilding the walls. Nehemiah is working on the city. Think of it as rebuilding the culture. Just as Ezra and Nehemiah began to rebuild Jerusalem in the midst of the cultural ruins, we too are called to be rebuilders, to go out into our world and to create institutions, families, churches, businesses, organizations, schools, governments that glorify God under the lordship of Jesus Christ. So here's what I'm asking you today. I'm going to, I'm doing good. I'm doing real good. It's a surprising thing. If I get too heady today, I would appreciate you to raise your hand and say, make it practical, Justin. What do you mean? What do you mean by that? Right? I'm asking you to do that. Right? How is that going to impact my day-to-day -day life? Because that's the most important thing for me today, is that this isn't just cool ideas or help you understand the world, but it's actually going to grip you in such a way that you can see how it affects you tomorrow. Okay? See how it affects you on Monday. The last thing I want to say in my introduction is, up front, is that I am a Calvinist. And by that, I mean, I believe the theology articulated by John Calvin during the Reformation and in his institutes is an accurate depiction of what Scripture actually teaches. And I am an, a Calvinist from my hair to my toes, all the way down. All right, I tell you that because what I'm going to teach you today comes from the Reformed tradition. And if you think Calvinism is just like God picks people and he doesn't pick other people. That's like a, a, a smidgen of, and that's not the accurate view, by the way, but that's just a smidgen of what Calvinism teaches. Calvinism is a whole worldview. It's a biblical worldview that affects everything in life. I tell you that because what I'm going to teach you today comes from the Reformed tradition, and it did not come from the Catholic Church. It has not come from the Baptist tradition, and it definitely has not come to what I call today the evangelifish tradition, okay? But I know that there's several different churches here today, and you might not all agree with me. That's totally okay. Chew the meat, spit the bones, as they say. However, I do believe that the Reformed faith gives us the most biblical worldview, 
And here it is. Listen, it has a history, a lot of good history of creating the things that I'm talking about, of going out in the world and building the good institutions that make a society and spreading the gospel. There's this little book called The Legacy of John Calvin, and it's by David Hall, and in it, he gives 10 uh, ways that Calvinism and its hopeful eschatology, its hopeful worldview, has changed the modern world for the better. I'm going to briefly skim through these real quick. Did you know the first public school system was created by John Calvin in Geneva? It was Christ-centered. It was free. It was led by teachers and, pa- and overseen by pastors. It, was, it, view, it viewed all of reality as under the lordship of Jesus Christ. You can't understand mathematics to the core if you don't realize there's an organizing center founding God himself. It had a view of history, Christ-centered view of history. It had a Christ-centered view of everything, okay? First public school system, where we get what we got today, even though we've put Christ out of it a long time ago, founded by John Calvin. And, and secondly, our understanding that we should care for the poor in, in, the, in society came from the scriptures, but it was first implemented through the work of John Calvin and this thing they called the Bourse. And the Bourse was ran, it was an institution, it was, think of it as social reform or uh, social welfare. Except it wasn't welfare in the way that we think of it, I'm going to go look at it in verse page 15 here. It was only for the truly disadvantaged. They took care of the fatherless. They took care of widows. They took care of orphans. They took care of refugees as they were fleeing France from religious persecution from the church. Calvin took care of those refugees. But there was moral prerequisites to accompany assistance. That means you had to live a moral life. You could not live immorally and receive assistance. What a difference that would make in our day Today, it was private or religious charity. It was not state largesse. So it wasn't, it didn't come through the state. It came through the church. The church is in Geneva. Ordained officers from the churches managed and brought accountability. So you said you needed support. They would send a deacon to, the, to that person's home and they would check it out. How is this person living? What's going on in their life? Are they being wise? Are they working if they can? They would oversee that. It was, had theological underpinnings. It came from Scripture. We're doing this because God tells us to help the poor, not because we believe in some kind of right that everyone has to some kind of universal basic income. A productive work ethic was sought. Assistance was mostly, most often temporary, and history is valuable. Ethics Third, ethics and interpretation of the moral law. Did you realize that out of Calvinism, Calvinism taught that we still should uh, obey the Old Testament law. Now, not the um, religious side of the Old Testament law or the, um, the ceremonial parts of the Old Testament law, but guess what? The Ten Commandments, universal law. God gave those, every society should follow those. So guess what? They based their human courts on biblical ideas of justice, all right? We did too in our society when we first founded it. Freedom of the church. Calvin taught the the idea that the church was distinct from the state and the state should not rule over the church in matters of theology or when to worship or what to wear on your face when you worship. Just throw that out there. The idea of collegial governing, the Senate, right? Separation of powers came from Calvinism. Decentralized politics, the idea of the republic, was first founded in Geneva. Why? Because he had a doctrine of sin, and he says no one man or woman or group of people should have that much power, so we need to decentralize politics with checks and balances to keep people accountable because we believe the doctrine of sin, Seven, the importance, well, I'll just call it the doctrine of vocation. In the medieval times, there was only one 
or two vocations that were sacred and you received a calling from God to do those. That was the priesthood or being a monk. But Martin Luther and John Calvin taught the priesthood of all believers and that your vocation, voca means call from Latin, it's the Latin word of calling. You can be called to be a father. You can be called to be a stay-at-home mom. You can be called to be a farmer. You can be called to be a bootmaker. You can be called to be all of these things are holy under our Lord. There's not one square inch of all creation that isn't sacred. So if you believe that you can you know, serve God while being a contractor, thank John Calvin and Martin Luther. Economics and profit, the idea of the individual... The, the uh, invisible hand and free market economics came out of biblical worldview, but specifically Calvinism. If you, how many liked, I liked singing this morning. I liked that I could understand it. Did you know before, like, and during medieval times, before the Reformation, everything done up on stage was done in Latin. When they, in Germany, they spoke German. They didn't sing in their own language. They didn't understand anything that was going on. That the fact that we have the Psalms in our own language and that we can sing in our own language, thank the Reformation. Thank Luther and Calvin. And then lastly, the power of publishing ideas. Right? We know about the Geneva, we know about the, the printing press, and the reformers took that new invention and lit the thing on fire. Once they got that thing, that thing never stopped printing. And Martin Luther and Calvinism said, we, one, we want to get the Bible and the language of the people so they can read it for themselves, so they can have a biblical worldview and go out and live. And then we're going to publish books after books after books. And on top of the educational system, Christians, the importance of reading for Christians is vital because we believe God revealed himself through a book. Most people, Luther's day, were illiterate, could not read. This is why one of the main reasons that Luther and then Calvin started the, the school as he wanted people to be able to read and to read the word of God. All right, so those are 10 simple ways that reformed theology, I'm gonna just say a Christian worldview went out into the world and build, built great things. And, and when the Huguenots arrived on the shores of our country, if you don't know the Huguenots, type that in. Google that when you get home because they got here 50 years before the Puritans, 50 years before the Pilgrims, and they came from French Calvinism, and they came here freeing religious persecution from France, and they came here directly out of Calvinism, and they came here to build a Christian society. That's why they came, to build a Christian society, just like Calvin did in Geneva. Now, I believe that this is what God has called us to do in our day and age, to build Christian institutions in the midst of our world, but we're not going to be able to do that if we don't actually have a Christian worldview, okay? Any questions? Anything that just, yes, sir? Yes. Okay, I'm going to get to that in the later on, but let me just say right away. Secular humanism has a faulty story. The next, in, in session two, we're going to talk about the Christian story, okay? And how it's completely against secular humanism. So secular hu humanism, the idea that, we, that, we have a, that, that there, there is a secular realm is first off heresy, okay? Secondly, secular humanism teaches basically we came from evolution, we came from the Big Bang. There is no God. That's secularism, okay? There is no God. All... Let me do it like this. The natural world. Okay? The natural world. This is a closed system. This is secular humanism. This is the natural world. Everything that exists, exists inside of this, okay? There's nothing outside of it. It's a closed system. So in this, we came by a divine accident plus chance and time and whatever. And therefore, humanism is the attempt to provide meaning in a meaningless closed world. So secularism is meaningless. We came from nowhere, a divine accident, 
That's the beginning. Where are we going? Everyone, all secularists agree, there will be an extinction date for the human species. The world and everything in it. Our planet is going to go the way of the moon, right? We're going to be a dead planet. So we came from nowhere. We're going nowhere. Therefore, all of life is meaningless. Humanism is an attempt to provide meaning to a, to a meaningless worldview, okay? So humanism tries to find something inside the natural world to provide meaning. So most secular humanists is like, we came from nowhere, we're going nowhere, but you know, you should go be a good person. Nietzsche's like, no. Hitler's like, nah. Right? But that's what secular humanism tries to do. Save the planet. Why? Why? Now, Christians say, we have a reason to save the planet. But secular humanism, why? Why slow down the bake, right? Why, what's the point? We're all headed that, what's the point? Right? Every other worldview other than Christianity, and this is going to be my big point in talk three, takes something from the natural world and tries to provide, try to build a life of meaning around something inside the natural world. Okay? So secular humanism is we don't need God to have meaning. We don't need God to have a good society. We don't need God to educate people. We don't need God for any of these things. We can somehow, inside the system, provide meaning. And hopefully you see the problem that I just kind of displayed. There's a lots of different people inside this natural world who offer up different things that we should provide meaning, right? And so it, you have societies will inevitably clash and collide and, and violence will take place. It always does on a secular humanistic worldview. So that's what I mean by secular humanism, trying to have a meaning, meaningful life without God, the transcendent one at the center of reality. Any other questions? And if I didn't, if I wasn't good enough, if you have more questions about it, ask. That's fine. Yes, sir. Yes, absolutely does. It is the definition of a humanistic worldview. Basically, I'm going to get there in talk three because I'm going to make, listen, there's a lot of isms. There's a lot of isms. You have Marxism. You have statism, right? You have communism. You have uh, existentialism. You have humanism. You have secularism. There's a lot of isms. And if you ask me ism questions, I, I know a little bit about a lot of them, but what I'm going to do in my third talk today is I'm going to show you the most simple way to understand them all when you leave because there's ultimately only two ways of understanding the world. And so that's, I'll save that for my, my third talk. Anything else? Yes? No, but if you ask me questions, I will. If you ask me questions, I will. Yeah. Well, maybe I will. Maybe in a little sense. What do you mean the three views? Oh, Lord. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm not going to do that today. If you want to talk to me afterwards, I will. Unless we have a fourth session, but Bama's playing at 2.30, so that's probably not happening today. Uh, so let me just say this. Let me just ask you. Well, we're going to get to this in the second one, too. No, I'm going to save it for the second one. I'll save it for the second one, and I'll bring that up again in the second one. Okay? Any other questions? If people are asking questions, I'm like, no, I can't answer that. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. Yes, sir. So the, is the question about, so people moving away from institutionalized Christianity towards a more alive Christianity? Well, I think if you want, and I'm using the word, I'm going to use this word liberal, and I don't mean it in the, just democratic. That's not what I'm, I'm using it. I'm using it in, there's a conservative way to read the scriptures. We believe this is the inerrant, infallible word of God, Okay. And liberalism takes criticism, the critical theory, and applies it to the Bible and believes that the Bible was written in a certain time and it basically needs to be updated and, and blended in to our new secular humanistic values that we've gotten from the natural world, okay? The, much of the institutional church 
Much of Presbyterians, much of Methodists, much of all of that, not all of it, but much of those went the way of liberalism. Why? Because the educational system of the day bought into critical theory that there was something higher above Scripture that could critique Scripture itself. They believed that, and that affected their worldview, that affected their religious institution. They began to preach like miracles can't happen. They began to preach like we don't really know God, and I don't really know about Jesus, and what is the Scriptures really true? I don't really know about human sexuality. I don't really know about female and male roles. And so they, they institutionalized that, and guess what? It's either Christ, I'm giving away all my future talks. It's either Christ or chaos. Christ or chaos. You start preaching a false gospel, your church dies. Unless it's a false gospel like Joel Osteen preaches that everybody wants to hear because it's going to make them rich, famous, and have beautiful, flowing hair. Right? So, that's what happens when secular humanistic values that are not scriptural gets put into a religious institution. Now, and, and sometimes the, there's a lot of people working for reformation in these institutions, but sometimes it's easier to start something new than reform something old. And so that's why there's a lot of uh, growth in, in, in non-denominational or charismatic or all around the world because just, there's, there's less institutionalized uh, hoops you got to jump through, but also that, that also creates a lot of chaos because you got to have a way to theologically train these folks, right? When you send them out to plant churches and do things. Okay, hopefully I answered that. Anything else? Yes, sir. My hope is the gospel of Jesus Christ that needs to blow every paradigm that we have. Just like it did with the Apostle Paul. Think of the Apostle Paul, right? Think of, you, you know him as, as Saul, right? Think about his worldview and all the presuppositions that he held. I know Jesus Christ is not the Son of God because of all of these different things. And then what, what happens? Jesus shows up and blows his paradigm, blows his worldview and changes his heart. So listen, I'm going to say things, let me just say this as an, another disclaimer. I'm going to say things today that you're gonna go, whoa, ugh, like, I hope my words go thud when they hit you today. I hope they thunk. I hope they stick in something, okay? And that's going to offend you, all right? It's gonna, that's going to offend you, and so you might need to come and talk to me and go, what did you mean by that? And then I can work it out. I can help you see what, what I said. I like change. So I'm going to say things in a very direct way that you might have a different worldview, right? And so it, it might hit you in a, in a hard way, in a different way, Okay? but I do that on purpose, all right? Because I love you. All right, there it is. I only went three minutes over. All right, cool.